Welcome to the very first episode of Open to Criticism, my podcast about how we talk about movies, who gets to do it, and why it matters. I'm Wendy Lloyd, and I'm a film critic. And if you want to know more about why I'm doing this podcast and what it's all about, check out the season one trailer. My very first guest is critic Helen O'Hara. With female-led stories, there is this assumption it's not for me, from some men. And I think women, generally speaking, we are used to, we are accustomed to going to see male-led films because, my God, if we weren't, we'd see nothing. It was a complete no-brainer to kick off with Helen. Her excellent book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, is a much-needed history of cinema that centres women and other marginalised voices. It provides valuable context about the huge skew towards white men in the industry, including in criticism, and covers topics that are central to this podcast, such as how white men's stories continue to be valued most and how women's opinions are still shouted down. I began by asking Helen what she learned during the writing and researching of the book that had particularly surprised or indeed infuriated her. A lo- I mean, a lot of it was infuriating. <laughs> yes, I think what was what was frustrating for me was really kind of the missed opportunities, the the careers where somebody had enormous amounts of talent and and never really got the chance to show it properly. Yeah, you know. So the fact that you had not just a, a handful but quite a large number of female directors um, in the silent era, the fact that you had about fifty percent of screenwriters or scenario writers, as they were known in the silent era, were were women. And they almost all got pushed out, yeah. you know. And then, and then you go forward into the studio era, and you have these, uh, you know, incredible black women like uh, Lena Horne or Dorothy Dandridge, who who are gorgeous and who look incredible on screen, and who can sing and who can dance and who can do everything. But because the system was so racist and it was baked into the the censorship laws of the time, their careers never really took off the way they should have done. And on and on and on. Mm. You know, we have all these stories going up to the present day, women who make successful movies and then don't get a chance to make a follow-up. Yeah, I think that's what was incredible, was was reading this entire history in terms of how women have fared and other marginalised groups. And you just just see how, as you said, it's relentless and it's all connected. And I think it's very easy for people to think, well, you know, women and other, you know, social groups have never had any position in mm. in film production. And that's just not true, is it? You know, they were very key until there was a recognition that, hey, there's some money in making movies and they can be credible as well. And women just got pushed out then, didn't they? Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't that they weren't they didn't want to do it, that they weren't capable of doing it. It's that the money didn't trust them to do yeah. it, I think. And that's been the case. And it remains the case, I think, for a lot of the time. I think you still get you still get, you know, female female directors, composers, cinematographers, you know, talking about how their expertise is continually questioned, how there's continual pushback mm. in a way that there simply isn't for their male colleagues. You know, and it, it's not, you know, there is obviously outright overt sexism as well. But there's also this just undercurrent the whole time of of these assumptions we have that a director is probably male, that yeah. a cinematographer is probably male. And therefore, if you present otherwise, suddenly you're kind of, you're suspect. You don't meet 
the the image in our head and therefore you have to continually justify yourself to to producers to you know the studio if there is one to to actors and stars and 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 to crew members even you know so it, i think it's just that extra level of of labor that women face before they do anything before and so you know it really is the case that a lot of women in a lot of jobs in the film industry are better than their male colleagues to get less success. Yeah, which we've seen, you know, in so many other industries mm. and is always the issue when it comes to trying to increase equality, isn't it? I yeah. mean, also in terms of that whole issue of money, you write about, obviously, there's, there's a dedicated section to film criticism itself. And it's quite interesting, I noted how things obviously that have occurred in you know our industry of criticism reflect so many of those patterns. Mm. And this whole thing of when, when film was considered criticism um, Credible and having some sort of value editorially, criticism which had begun being quite dominated by women. Mm-hmm. Once again, they moved the sections in which, you know, out of the female pages, didn't they? And again, women got pushed out. So that's the history and criticism too. Exactly that. Yeah. And that did kind of shock me. I hadn't really realised you know, to what extent that was the case. And of course, thinking about it, I should have done, you know, with the hmm. exception of a couple of, you know, obviously very prominent outliers like Pauline Kael. You know, the recent history of criticism has been very male. But, but yeah, and I, and I knew about people like Dorothy Parker and I knew about a handful of the early female critics. But again, there were so, so many hmm. for the first really half of the century but the you know the auteur movement and the idea of, of cinema as an art form as that took hold then again suddenly criticism was something that men really wanted to do in great great numbers and women were again pushed out and and you get these ridiculous statistics where you know i think it's two thirds of film critics roughly are are male it actually feels like more yeah i know what you mean <laughs> it really does right when we go to those screenings yeah it's 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 very male dominated, and and I think that's because a lot of the big broadsheets yes. um, are very male dominated. Well, that's it, isn't it? There is a you know the skew is much heavier the higher up the ladder of top posts mm. and opportunities, and that very much is is you know despite current attempts and efforts that are paying dividends in terms of increasing diversity, that skew is heavier at the top end where the big opportunities are. Yeah. Um, let's talk about then the film canon because you also talk about that and how this hallowed film canon really weighs heavy, I think, to this day on what we as critics and, of course, the wider film-loving community, mm-hmm. you know, what we're supposed to value. It's it's massive, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a really important thing that maybe we, we don't talk about enough because it is just so background to all of us. You know, there is this understanding, tacit or sometimes explicit, that you will know... Yeah, certain films. If you if you if you want to be serious about being a film critic, you will know certain films. Almost all of them were made by white men, you know, in that in that sort of official canon. Now, again, that's beginning to be better. People are starting to talk more about world cinema in in ways that they should. People are starting to you know the the, the big Hollywood movies are starting to be made by people who aren't white men in greater numbers. Uh, than before. But, you know, historically, the canon has been all these films, The Godfather and and The Exorcist. And, you know, it's been Spielberg, it's been Scorsese, it's been Fellini, it's been, you know, uh, Renoir, it's been all of the great Mm. male filmmakers. And 
and most of them white, most of them straight, most of them cis, able-bodied, you know, you name it. And that has to have an effect on people coming into the industry because you're essentially having to sit down and spend thousands of hours watching the world perspective of one very small group of humanity in order to kind of qualify yourself to talk about, one would hope, all of humanity in cinema. Mm. And so I think we, you know, again, it's something we have to be kind of conscious of. We have to be conscious that not everybody is going to love Hitchcock or Coppola or, you know, Spielberg in in, in my particular populist part of the world <laughs> in the same way. And maybe other people are coming at it from a very different point of view. And that doesn't mean that they're not qualified to be film critics. It just means they are coming with different life experiences, different cultural background and and a different expertise in cinema. And so the idea of this kind of consensus of, of, a, of an important film canon can, I think, again, be quite toxic because we are, again, you know, elevating one small group to a status that maybe they shouldn't dominate to the extent that they do. Yeah, my head sometimes frazzles at the, at the idea of how you how you shift that. And mm. ultimately, I think, I suppose it just takes time, doesn't it? Because we are seeing a shift in the kind of films that have been in recent yeah. in very recent years being yeah. nominated and winning awards and films from, you know, different cultures, even films like Parasite or what have you, that wouldn't really have gotten a look in, you know, not that many years ago. Yeah, not at the Oscars, yeah. No, not at the Oscars, exactly. So... I guess it's 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 just the time it takes. And in some ways, obviously, it's horribly frustrating for all of us who've gone, well, we've already seen this going on for so long. But it's because the conversation is now happening. That's part of the shift, isn't it? Yeah. And this is this is why, you know, I, and I kind of talked about this a lot in the book. No one's saying the conversation is the end of the work. Yeah. It's the very much the beginning. And this goes right across, you know, equal pay and me too and and all of these things. But at least being aware there's a problem is step one. Being aware that these are not necessarily the mm. best films ever made. They're the ones you've heard of. And why is it that you've heard of these ones and not others? That's step one. And having that conversation and starting to look into, you know, the grandmasters of other countries and the, the, the forgotten filmmakers of the US or UK who may still be, you know, straight, cis, able-bodied white men, but have been overlooked for whatever reason, have a different cultural perspective that maybe hasn't been discussed in the same way. You know, it's it's about keeping the canon moving, keeping it being a living thing. And as you say, you know, change will come. It will take a huge amount of time, but it, it will only come if we keep having the conversation about whether or not there's a problem and acknowledge that there's a problem. I think, honestly, anyone who says there isn't, whatever, you're wrong. You're just wrong. <laughs> it's not a bad yeah. opinion. You're just wrong. <laughs> um well, it's it's that they're, it's that they're not wanting to even listen to the arguments, mm. and they're such coherent arguments. They're literally saying there are gaps here, and it's not really something that there's a great way to defend, is it? I wouldn't have thought so, but I'm sure somebody's out there trying to de- <laughs> defend it. There yes. usually is. Um, yes, and we probably meet a few of them sometimes. We, we do, so. I'm sure. But look, I mean, to be clear, like no one is saying that you know the Scorseses and the Coppolas and the, you know, the John Fords and the Houstons and so on aren't great. We're just saying they're not the only great people. Mm. Um, you know, if, if you are going to, as part of your film education, 
uh, be forced to sit through racism from D.W. Griffith. Maybe you should also sit down and watch some Lois Weber and realise that there were other people there at the beginning of of cinema as well. And I, I think it, that's what we're asking. It's not let us erase these men from the culture, let us cancel them. Yeah. It's just let us broaden the canon and and talk about films that we maybe in the past have have not gotten the oxygen that the men have. Yes, and you're right. It's very important not to scare the horses here. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you mentioned Lois Weber there, and I think it's um, really helpful how your book talks more into the specifics of, you know, what kind of stories um, are, are valued. And you mentioned how Lois Weber was eventually very disillusioned because, you know, her quite nuanced stories were pushed out in favour of, of more, quote, important stories, mm. these male ones of war, politics, law, serious male-led journalism. And, you know, you only have to think again to award ceremonies and the kind of films that win to realise that that really is still yeah. very much the case to this day. And that's kind of the issue, isn't it? It's kind of saying that really quite narrow tales um, are valuable. And we've all kind of accepted that to some extent for a long time. Yes, I think that's absolutely the case. I, I think it's, you know, even in very well-meaning, very kind of woke male colleagues that I have, our intent are, are inclined to be instinctively sniffy of another Jane Austen adaptation, which mm. in the case of Persuasion, okay, fine. But, you know, <laughs> they were instinctively not not there for that. They were instinctively not there for Little Women. Of course, it won many of them over because it's a great film. But, but. You know, just on paper, they were like, that's not for me. I'm not interested. Well, it was kind of guilty till proven innocent, isn't it? Very much so. With, with, with female-led stories, there is this assumption, it's not for me, from some men. And I think women, you know, to an extent, may have that about something like The Expendables. But generally speaking, we are used to, we are accustomed to going to see male-led films because, it, my God, if we weren't, we'd see nothing. <laughs> um, and some women don't see very much because they don't see anything for themselves on screen. I think there's a there's a major kind of if you like empathy gap there where men are not taught to be open-minded and to be there for female-led films and that's again it's beginning to change some of these very cool female filmmakers are beginning to shift that needle you know I I know I talk about it in the book probably too much but genuinely I think Wonder Woman is a really important film in moving that needle I know it's a silly superhero film but it was a massive cultural worldwide hit and it's yeah. something that men as well as women saw and it's something that women found themselves reflected in in a way that we hadn't in very bad superhero films like Catwoman or Elektra that had tried to bring us female superheroes before and and, and, it, and it dismantles a lot of box office myths about how much a film with a female lead could make. Yes. So, so stuff like that is genuinely important at moving the needle and just convincing people to give films a go. Uh, and that opens up the possibility of, of yes, all these female-led subjects being taken seriously because why don't we see pregnancy... Well, first of all, why don't we see pregnancy movies? Yeah. There are, like, vanishingly few compared to the number of people every year who have who have a baby <laughs> and also the, the, the sheer amount of human drama and emotion that goes into uh, giving birth to a human. Um, so why don't we see those? We definitely don't see them at the Oscars. Why not? You know, we don't see them at award ceremonies. We don't see them lauded. We don't see them talked about as important mm. things. But they affect far more people and probably kill nearly as many people as wars do. Yeah. 
you know, so why is this not a subject that is that is kind of out there and talked about? And th- and that's just one, you know, th- th- there's a million. Um, but there is this assumption that women's stories are less inherently serious. And it's interesting to me that that didn't come when the female directors left at the end of the silent era. At that point, I think female audiences were still valued. You had somebody like David O. Selznick, uh, the, the the great super producer who who really did make his career around films that would appeal to women to quite a large degree. It was later on that that vanished, and it was actually I think it was it was fading through the the fifties. But for me, it's really the sixties and seventies where you start seeing big luxurious, if you like, female-focused films disappearing. Yes, and kind of being pushed into kind of like daytime drama. Yes. Um, And the rest of it was all your kind of cool, gritty, urban male stories. And that very much, um, you know, and then you've got, you know, your Scorsese's coming through with all that side of stuff. So it really is interesting to kind of watch that pattern go through. And you're talking there about um, women's... So it's interesting, isn't it? Women's stories as in things that happen to women not being valued, Mm. things that are of decidedly female like giving birth but then also we've obviously there's been a lot of tussling and we are seeing an improvement in terms of having women in positions of authority yeah. in films but we but it's still a kind of you know tug of war a bit isn't it to kind of have women who have positions of authority but they're in a position of authority that is relevant to a female kind of environment it's there's there's an awful lot of different angles at this and it makes me just realize how we've just been overlooked right across the board yeah very much i i think there's a lot of the time where they look at a script and go okay where can we get a woman in here yeah. we've realized this is a bit of a sausage fest <laughs> and and so they'll make the police chief or the judge a woman but there's nothing and, and look that's fine that's better than nothing i'll i'll take it as a start but that's not the same as having a, a truly you know woman's story yeah um uh, and I'm pleased, by the way, with my language here, I'm saying women make that as inclusive as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Non-gender people, of course, as well. Um, but it's about telling a breadth of stories. And we, we are still kind of being fitted in around the edges of the white man's story uh, a lot of the time. Um, and that goes for everyone who isn't straight, cis, able-bodied, white man, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. So it just it really does come down to um, being willing to tell a breadth of stories. And that's why, you know, but box office successes for, you know, a Little Women, for a Wonder Woman, for a, a Mamma Mia, if they're consistently enough coming, that can make a difference because then at least the studios realise that there is a market there because mm. they denied it for years and years and years. Well, that's it. And now that now that it is coming, shows at the box office, but it still seems to be, in your book details, how it's still... An, an issue. So again, it's it's like it has to kind of do this over a certain amount of time before people will be run over. So um, it takes time. But in conjunction with that, us critics play this role mm. in terms of how things are valued and um, mediated for audiences and how much they uh, enjoy them. And as you've mentioned there, you know, two thirds of critics are um, male and, you know, the higher up you go, the, there's more of them. So you know, in terms of what what's your kind of, um, and you do talk about it in the book, what's your kind of understanding of why and how a, a more diverse group of critics can really change things, you know, in terms of the films we get to see and appreciate? Well, I think it's just about, 
starting conversations. You know, uh, we all know, we, we definitely know, Wendy, that uh, critics are not all powerful. You know, there are, people are on the internet are very fond of putting up uh, box office numbers and, and next to Rotten Tomatoes scores and showing us, oh, you thought this was bad, but everybody loves it. And that's fine. Yeah. Everybody can love it. We are happy about that. We all got into this because we love films, first of all. And, you know, believe it or not, we generally want films to do well and be good. That's what we're writing in the hope of happening. But we want to have the conversation around them. We want to take films seriously, both as an art form and as an entertainment, and, and discuss whether it succeeds as those things. And that means talking about it from a diverse range of points of view, you know, I try to read a lot of, you know, black critics and disabled critics and LGBTQ plus critics because they bring a perspective that I simply don't have. Yeah. And they they absolutely notice things that I haven't noticed. And it makes me, I hope, a better and more aware critic to, to read those kind of articles, to, to learn from them and to maybe look out in future for some of the kind of issues that they've raised. Yeah. So... We have to be a diverse group because otherwise we're going to miss things. That's the basic thing. If it's if it's just one, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, research on this in the business world. If you have a group of middle class, well educated white men, and that's your board, you are going to miss things. Yeah. Whereas if you have a more diverse board or you know working group or whatever in your company, you you are going to spot problems at an earlier stage because you're just thinking about things in different ways. You have different priorities. You have different life experiences, and that enables you to do a better job. And I think that's true of kind of criticism as a whole, as well. Absolutely, and I think you know you mentioned um, how identity politics can get thrown in as a kind of defence of going, oh, you can't start, you know, kind of point saying that we've got to have X amount of people, or you know, and even not even when it comes to a quota, just what you're talking about there. But of course, as you, as you kind of, I'm very, I was very pleased to read argue quite fervently. That's kind of not recognising the invisible white male. That basically we've we're, this whole conversation is bringing the invisible white male perspective out of the shadows and saying that is what it represents and therefore it doesn't represent the rest of us. Exactly. This, this, is, this is why I keep saying, uh, you know, straight, cis, white, able-bodied male is not a human default setting. Yeah. And it feels like it sometimes in, in many Western countries because they are what we see, you know, reading the news, being on the news, being politicians, being, you know, leaders of, of business, leaders of trade unions, leaders of wherever... We keep seeing these same kind of faces and we are and we keep seeing them on our cinema screens as well. Something like, what, 70 probably percent of of film leads in Hollywood are, are straight white men. Um, so we we may have that tendency to think, well, they're the ones who are in charge and, and, and subconsciously or not. And that has to change because that's that's not a great way for us to be. It's, and I, I said this in the book as well. But you know, what does it say about us as a society if all of our heroes, all of our superheroes, are straight cis white men? Because the reality, as we know, yeah, is not that. <laughs> the reality, as we know, is that some of the people who are responsible, many of the people who are responsible for climate change, many of the people who are responsible for, for inaction on climate change and and all the many problems that plague us are straight white men you know um so why aren't we t why aren't we showing a diverse range of, of of heroes across cinema because that's the the reality of the world 
Well, absolutely. But as we know, they would rather maintain the status quo because they're doing quite nicely in it. And again, you know, one has to kind of recognise that that is the Gates and criticism as well um, in terms of, you know, this, this white male lens. Um, you know, basically it, it accepts the biases and skewed representation that we're talking about. It accepts all those things as the norm. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I mean, something that I found in some of the res- the research I did was this kind of tension between, um, you know, aesthetic, you know, judging things from this very traditional, just you can just look at it and see the film and there's there's no questioning of any of those things I just mentioned because, well, that's just how the world is. Mm. And then arguably everybody else is, is, is seeing the world through a slightly disenfranchised lens mm. and for some people very disenfranchised yeah. lens. So this is why we really need to change the voices as well, isn't it? Because it's that interpretation that speaks to the audience. We're in the middle here. Yeah, very, very much so. And just, you know, I, I keep coming back to it again in the book and, and just in life, the, uh, Roger Ebert's quote about c- cinema being an empathy machine. If the only people we're creating that empathy for is one group, then that's a problem. And if that group is never really having to learn empathy for anyone else, that's a problem. Mm. Um, you know, it's something that Bell Hooks uh, wrote about extensively in relation to black women, for example. But it is hugely, hugely important that we have a chance to see alternative takes. And I think, you know, it's been interesting, you know, seeing some of the the reaction to like Jordan Peele's films, for example. Yeah. Uh, where people are a little bit taken aback to see themselves as the villains sometimes, you know, and, and, and you yeah. can see the sort of <laughs> mental shift happening of, oh, oh, I don't I don't like this. And it's like, well... Yeah, that's not, that's not how I am on that's screen. That's not how I am. <laughs> I, I, I don't see myself in this film. Who do I relate to? You know, yeah. and, and you literally do kind of see that with, with men sometimes going, well, I don't know who I'm supposed to relate to. And in, in something like Hustlers, yeah. where you had a group of women robbing men, and and you saw some, you know, pieces of male criticism going, I, I don't know who I'm supposed to relate to here. What about the male victims? They're the they're the people we should really be talking about. Wow. And and you're like, <laughs> I mean, what about the male victims in Goodfellas, yeah. guys? Uh, <laughs> you know? It's 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 incredible, isn't it? It's the automatic ability to empathize, which partly as women we're raised in that capacity a bit differently and as we know as as you mentioned earlier as 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 cinema audiences we had to empathize with the men and the male stories and the male characters otherwise there was nothing for us to watch so you know we've had to kind of see a kind of multiple perspective of things whereas yeah. i guess what we're sort of trying to ask them and encourage them to do is to kind of themselves now make a few shifts but it's again it's one of these things is going to take time yeah, i just wondered whether for you personally in your criticism mm. do you feel like you're doing your criticism differently since we've had more open debate about things? And do you feel, uh, you know, a bit of a tension sometimes in terms of I'm expected to acknowledge and critique this film in terms of its aesthetic qualities, but I'm also, I can't help but see there's some problematic things going on here. So I guess what I'm basically saying is, you know, how do you judge a film overall if it looks great, but its social values absolutely suck? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I essentially try to say that, you know, and, and I feel like it is, it's maybe a cop-out, to be honest, uh, um, on my part to say, look, I, I had a really good time with this film, but I also think it's, you know, it, it is short in these respects and, you know, it, it's bad on representation or whatever and it doesn't try to do X, Y or Z. You know, I, I don't want to be too didactic all the time. I don't want to be always mm. like the sort of, you know, the fun sponge um 
image, right, of the of the joyless critic who can't enjoy anything because it's sexist. I mean, if I couldn't enjoy anything because it was sexist, I wouldn't enjoy yeah. very much, you know. So you, so you have to be able to sort of say it and move on. But you hope that by saying it enough over and over again, every time it comes up, that, you know, things do begin, begin to change. And I think we are beginning to see those changes. We're beginning to see at least the very basic top-level changes the, the very easiest ones to make yeah um you know we're seeing more diverse casting we are seeing if there is a big huge uh big budget movie about a woman they are now interviewing female directors and they are they feel under pressure to hire female directors and frankly they should that's good yeah. now the next step will be getting them to feel under pressure to hire female directors generally you know yes um and and all by the way again all underrepresented groups not just sort of fighting for white women here of course um so so i think it's i think it's about having the conversation but i don't you know there are films that i know are objectively bad and stupid but i had fun and i want to be able to say that so <laughs> but it's interesting you said there about you know the the fear of coming across as didactic and i totally empathize with that and i think this ties into something you discuss in the book about the issue you know the central issue for female critics um and i and, and i suppose in this one specifically sort of female is this whole problem with having an opinion oh yeah and that having an opinion is not feminine yeah, and I do think you, we still get a bit of that online. I, I'm very lucky, and my little corner of Twitter is is fairly, you know, um, nice, frankly. Apart from when I <laughs> I have criticised something like Batman v Superman um, in, or Joker, uh, but but generally speaking, you know, female critics get more flack for the same negative opinions. And I've seen, I've talked to female critics and their male colleagues who have said yes in having exactly the same discussion where we shared the same view, she got shit for it on Twitter and I didn't. Yeah. You know, and and so you there is absolutely more pushback at women having an opinion. Um and that that tends to be especially the case for, you know, the big pop culture stuff, just because there are more people out there who have their own baked in opinion, uh, who are therefore offended by someone who doesn't agree with it. Yeah. So, you know, that that happens. I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to be a critic, if you're even thinking about a career as a critic, you're probably fairly able to take criticism, one would hope. One would um, hope, I think yes. <laughs> yes, I think you should, you know, you should be willing to be critiqued if you're going to be a critic. I think that's, that's number one. Otherwise, it, it does feel rather um, hypocritical. But at the same time, there is a level of vitriol that comes for women that men simply don't experience. And... Um, and that is something that, again, we need to be aware of. And also, like, editors should be aware of it and should be making steps to deal with it and should be giving their female critics who are maybe getting some of this kind of these pile-ons, they should be getting more support yeah. when that happens. And, and, of course, if it happens to men too, then they should absolutely also get more support. But, you know, you, you see a lot of the time the the newspapers or whatever concerned kind of washing their hands of it. And I think that's pretty poor, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Because the thing is, is that it means that 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 you're forever having to justify and your competency and expertise, mm -hmm. which again aligns with the history of female filmmakers and and other filmmakers in in Hollywood basically who were not white men yeah. had the same issue didn't they where in terms Absolutely. of they didn't get to innovate in the same way and i wonder whether or not you think that that does the, the knock on does happen in criticism that do 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 we 
police our voices a little bit more in our criticism? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Do you? Yeah, Interesting. I do. I try not to. Yeah. Um, but, but I'll give you an example. I was asked by The Telegraph to write about the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League yeah. uh, before that happened, before it came out, while the campaign was ongoing. And I had a, a sort of long, dark night of the soul because I knew that they would criticise me wherever I wrote. Right. And I was like, am I up for two weeks of fighting about this on Twitter? And then I decided, you know, essentially, screw it. I'm not going to let them stop me taking an interesting commission. And I, I bent over backwards to be very, very fair to them and to describe the campaign accurately and to talk about all the good they'd done as well as all the, uh, you know, harassment, frankly, <laughs> uh, which I, I don't think I used the word harassment in the piece. And um, and sure enough, I got two weeks of, of abuse for it. Um, so, you know, so be it uh, to an extent. But yeah, you do have to be a little bit aware of this stuff and you do have to be aware of uh, the people who are going to come for you whatever you say and also you know not not just the sort of the reactionary forces but, but sometimes your own side that was something I was very aware of when I was writing the book you know I wanted to be inclusive of course I wanted that baked in mm. but I was also horribly aware that there simply aren't a lot of trans stars in Hollywood history yeah, because they're, they, they weren't given the opportunity, you know, so yeah, exactly. what, what can I say about that? So I think there's, you know, there are limits to what any one person can do. And, and especially if you're talking about something like Twitter or Facebook or even just a film review, there are limits to how much nuance you can fit in. Yeah. So always, if somebody's looking to be offended by your work, they can be offended. They can find a way. <laughs> yes, well, exactly. But I, I suppose what's nice is that the story you just told there just shows how actually they've now got to the point where they will literally leap on on you whatever is said. Oh, yeah. Then you, then might, you might as well, well say, say exactly yeah. what you want to say. So, that, so they don't achieve what they want to do in the end anyway. And quite right, too. But it's it's certainly not easy. And it's not it's not reasonable that um, we have to put up no. with these things still. Um, your book, I, I would say that your optimism in the book is kind of, um, it's tentative at times, but you do say that Me Too, Time's Up, BLM have improved things in, in in the Hollywood industry overall as a whole and the associated places such as criticism, awards, mm. festivals and things like that. Mm. For you personally, how much do you think it's, um, you know, ha ha how has it changed for you? Do you feel that like you have more opportunities in recent years? I mean, you're a very established critic, so maybe it's it's less of an impact for you, but I wonder how you feel it's, it's affected you personally. Um yeah, I do think it's less of an impact for me. I do feel like in my career, there have been times where I have benefited from people trying to be more diverse. And and again, look, I am a straight, cis, white, able-bodied, middle-class, you know, over-educated woman. The only sort of, if you like, uh, minority or, or underrepresented group that I belong to is, is, woman, is women, you know, so I'm not exactly holding myself up as a beacon of representation here, but... Um, there have been times where somebody has called Empire Magazine when I was on staff uh, full time there and and said, you know, do you have any female critics you could send? Because we've already had like 64 men in a row. <laughs> so, you know, then it was pretty much me because for most of my time on staff, I was the only female writer who was who was available. Yeah. Uh, so so there have been times like that where I have benefited. Yeah. Um, there have also been times where I think I wasn't considered for stuff because I was a woman. So, you know, I, I don't know overall if, it, if it's helped me particularly. But, um, but generally speaking, yeah, I think because I am established, because I have been around for a long time, I don't know if I'm, you know, number one on the list of, uh, of diversity hires. And I shouldn't be because, like I said, I'm 
I've, I've, I'm everything that the the white men were complaining about are, except that I'm, I'm a woman. Um, but I have, I do try and, you know, act mindfully about this stuff. I have turned down jobs where I said, look, you shouldn't be talking to me about this. You should find a, a woman of colour or you should find someone who's more qualified in their life experience to address this issue. Um, so I try to, to do the right thing that way. Um, do you think your white male peers are doing the same thing? I would hope so. I think increasingly they are. I, I don't know that all of them are, <laughs> always. <laughs> but look, that's, I mean, they, they are on their own kind of journeys learning about this stuff and, and they have longer to go in terms of learning about this stuff because a lot of them really did start in 2017 to, to a great degree. Yeah. Um, and, and look, I, I don't want to slag them off because some of them are very conscious of this and are really trying mm. their best. This is not, this is hashtag not all men, you know, not all male critics. Um, but But there is sometimes just a degree where they haven't had to think about this stuff and they haven't been confronted with it and therefore they're still kind of uh, in, in an earlier stage maybe of working on it. The cautiously optimistic words there of Helen O'Hara. And you can hear more from Helen with her weekly contributions to the Empire podcast, BBC Radio Ulster and her highly entertaining musings on Twitter. And I cannot recommend enough Helen's book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Open to Criticism. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to the podcast and follow the show's social media. And tell others so that we can spread the conversation about how we talk about movies, who gets to do it and why it matters. Next week, I'll be talking to critic Leila Latif. The sort of level of disrespect is what makes me furiously angry. We've got reviews being published in national newspapers that literally just say more trash from Spike Lee. We don't talk about white male filmmakers in that way. We don't. Open to Criticism is written, produced and presented by me, Wendy Lloyd, with original music by Hamish Clark. Bye for now.